Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good evening, church. And it's good to be with you. Thank you, Anthony, um, for, for introducing me. I didn't have to do it myself now. Um, but hey, I appreciate Anthony and Matt inviting me. Um, they, are, they have been mentors to me since I've been I'm a young, I, I, clearly, I'm a young guy in ministry. You know, uh, I go to the nursing home and people say, why aren't you in school? And, so, you know, um, yeah, I, I'm a pretty young guy in ministry and I, I need the mentorship. And I really appreciate uh, these two uh, doing, doing that for me. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 73 tonight, Psalm 73, if you want to open your Bibles there. That's where we're going to be reading tonight. Um, and one of the songs we just read, or just sang, um, Still far from Jesus, many live in sin and doubt. And then you hear the lady saying, darkness and doubt. We're talking about doubt tonight, is what we're talking about. And um, that is so true. And how does the psalmist deal with doubt? And I love this. Um, Psalm 73, if you're still turning there. Um, let me share this with you. Have you, have you ever heard the saying, um, and, and, and you hear preachers do this all the time, God is good all the time. And then you hear, the, the, they, they want to point at the crowd, and they, they want the crowd to say, all the time, God is good. And then they do that back and forth, and it's real fun. It's like, you know, a locker room um, chant, you know, and, and we're all really excited about that. Um, you hear it at church camps all the time. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. They do it over and over and over again. And, and let me just tell you something. I can't stand that. I, I do not like that. I, I, know, I know I'm being picky, um, and it's just me. Um, but um, it's, it, it drives me nuts. Usually um, that ends up being the entire, entirety of the sermon. And, and usually what it means is, oh, I just thought of this five minutes beforehand, or somebody just asked me to speak, and I, I'm doing this whole thing uh, off, the, off the cuff here. Well, um, a few years ago, probably about uh, six or seven years ago, I went to a youth rally as, as a high school boy, and um, that's how the sermon starts that I'm listening to. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And after the twelfth time, I'm ready to walk out. I'm tired of it. And um, that's when he stops and he says, if God is good all the time, all the time God is good, then why did God take away my 14-year-old boy from me? It was silent. I mean, it, you, you, couldn't hear, you couldn't hear a thing in the room. It, it was totally silent. I stayed for that sermon. And it was one of the best sermons on doubt I'd ever heard. Because this guy wrestled with his doubt, wrestled with his experience that he had, and how that squares with his belief about and in God. We're going to be reading Psalm 73. It's all about doubt. The psalmist is doubting himself. So let, let's, um, let's, let's dig into Psalm 73 here. All, all the psalms we've done uh, we, that you can look at here, um, up to 73, um, up to this point, have been written um, mostly by David. You see a lot of these written by David. There are some others in there, but up to this point, a lot of them are written by David. Uh, he wrote almost half the psalms, but, but you can see here at the beginning of this psalm, this psalm is not David. This psalm is attributed to Asaph. And if you remember your New Testament at all, Asaph is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew, um, depending on your translation. Some translations correct that. 
because Asaph is not technically in the uh, genealogy of Matthew, uh, or genealogy of Jesus, but I think Matthew's winking at you. I don't think Matthew's made a mistake. I think he's wanting to, to point out that Asaph and Amos are, are the, the Psalms and the prophets that are, that are bringing about Jesus Christ. Asaph is this guy who's mentioned by Matthew. Um, as you can see, this is written by Asaph. It's, it's the first psalm and the third book of the psalms. And so this is still on the darker side of the psalms. You're still in a lot of the laments. Many of these psalms are still, um, still very, uh, they, they almost sound like complaints sometimes. They're, they're the ones where you're just letting God have it. Maybe you're questioning God. Maybe you're just complaining to God. Maybe you're begging God for salvation or protection. They're the psalms that express fears and anxieties and pains. But, but amidst all of these rather depressing psalms, there's always a message of hope. When you get into books four and five of the psalms, the tone of the psalms really shifts it flip-flops to more praise and less lament. But we're in book three tonight, so we're still on the darker side of the Psalms. And, and while they're darker and more depressing, I think they speak directly to many of our life situations um, that, that we encounter. Many times, I think these darker Psalms can put our emotions that we may have a hard time expressing for us into words for us. And then they teach us how to pray through these emotions and life situations. And this, this evening, uh, the psalm we're diving into really speaks uh, about this experience. It's part of the Christian experience, doubt is. Let's read the entirety. We're going to start by reading the entirety of Psalm 73. I want you to grasp the full image here. Starting, of course, in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. God is good all the time. God, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as, as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their, their hearts overflow with follies. They, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people will turn back to them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but, at, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Verse 1 is a sweet verse. It's just sweet. It's one of those you could put in a picture frame or, or stitch onto a pillow. Truly, God is good. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's solid truth. God is good. Asaph starts out with this statement of confidence in God's character and, and, and how he treats his people and how he treats the pure in heart. He treats the righteous um, it's the foundational truth for his entire worldview. It's everything he believes. God is good to the righteous. And, and if the psalm stopped right there, I think I'd be okay with that. I think I'd be happy. God is good. Um, I, I mean, you can almost hear yourself shouting, Amen, after Asaph says this. But that's not where the psalm stops. In fact, the first word of verse 2 tells you exactly what you need to know about the psalm. What's the first word of verse 2? But... Yeah, it's but. Truly God is righteous, but. And that's where the psalm gets you, because you read verse 1 and you think, yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And the moment you go to say amen, Asaph says, but as for me. And your heart drops because you know what's coming. You know what this psalm is about. Perhaps you've even been there where the psalmist is. Maybe you've even been the one to question verse 1. Maybe you've asked, is God really all that great? Because like it or not, we, we all know exactly what Asaph is feeling. We've all been there. In fact, this isn't even just a Christian thing. At one time or another, everybody, non-Christian or Christian, asked that question, is God good? Unfortunately, the tendency of the church is uh, to treat, I don't, and I don't know, I'm not talking about Pickerington, I, I, I don't know this church, but the tendency of the church, and I'm talking about the church as a whole, is to treat this like blasphemy. You can't ask that question. Is God good? You can't say that. You're, you're in church. How can you ask a question like that? We, we, we treat doubt like it's not normal, like it's not something that we all, we all go through. We treat doubt like it's a spiritual malfunction. We, we treat people who are doubting like they are a, a, a lower level of spiritual. We, we treat doubt as a weakness. We, we shove it off and we ignore it. And the only answer we have for people with doubt is have faith, as if faith is something you can go pick up from the grocery store on the way home. That's not the case. So, so let me be, be resonant here. Let me be clear. Doubt is normal. And doubt is not a malfunction. Doubt does not make you less spiritual. And it's not a weakness. And it's, it's something we should not hide or ignore. In fact, let's get personal. I have doubts. I have them all the time. And I'm glad I do. Because here's the secret truth about doubt. Uh, my belief is doubt is the fuel of faith. I've heard other people say that before. That's not original to me. Doubt is the fuel of faith. And here's what I mean. I don't think faith is a fix for doubt. I think faith is a result of your doubts. Doubt is necessary for faith. In fact, think about it. If Asaph wouldn't have doubted, we wouldn't have this psalm to help us through our doubts. Another preacher said it, said it beautifully. People's words, doubting God, have become God's word for doubting people. People's words, doubting God, have become God's word for doubting people. That's what this psalm is for us. Asaph writes this psalm about him doubting God, and it's become God's word to us about doubt. Doubt is not a weakness. Doubt is necessary for faith. 
Who is the person in the Bible who, who, is, who is always associated with doubt? You know it. Thomas. I heard you say it. Yeah, Thomas. In fact, he's often called Doubting Thomas. He's, he's the one who questioned Jesus when, when Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. Um, he, remember what, what he said there. He said, why don't we all go along so we can die with you? Doubting Thomas. And then when Jesus was resurrected, he had to see it with his own eyes. He had to feel the holes with his fingers. And that's why we call him Doubting Thomas. But, but right after that moment, what does Thomas say? He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. As far as I know, he's the only apostle up to that point to call Jesus God. He's the first one. And maybe a more fitting name for Thomas would be Rational Thomas or, or Tangible Thomas. I, I don't think Thomas's d- doubt made his faith weak. His doubt made his faith strong. His doubt made his faith strong enough to go farther than any of the other apostles when he said, my Lord and my God. I think doubt is necessary for faith. So, so let's break down these, these first three verses here, just real simply. Verse 1, here's what I know to be true. Verse 2, but, but I'm having doubts about that truth. And then verse 3, here's why I'm having these doubts. We're clued into the why behind Asaph's doubts with the first word of verse 3, 4. Asaph says, he doubts because he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word prosperity here is, is really uh, a good translation choice, in my opinion. The word here is actually just the Hebrew word, you're probably familiar with it, um, shalom, which is simply peace, or, or maybe even more, uh, it's, it's completeness or wholeness. Um, shalom, it, it, it's just peace. But, but prosperity is a great way to translate with this psalm, because that's exactly the idea this psalm is giving us of the wicked. They are prospering. They are the ones who are at peace. They are the ones who are complete. They're the ones who seem to enjoy prosper and peace, and who get to enjoy a happy life, while the good people seem to experience bad things. And that's what verses 4 through 9 really express there. They, they express the frustration we have as the people of God trying to do the right thing. And when we look at the people who do not care about right and wrong, and they're prospering, man, it hurts us. And the word in verse 3, envious, envious, is a really good word for how we feel about that. Notice uh, all the imagery used to describe the prosperity of the wicked. You see in verse 4, they're well fed. and They have no pangs until death. Verse 5, there's no trouble. They're they're not stricken. Verse 6, they are clothed in pride and violence. Verse 7, they are abundant in the follies and desires. And then in verses 8 and 9, the language they use is arrogant and lofty and scoffing. They they even speak against heaven itself. And I love how the second line of verse 9 puts it, their tongue struts through the earth. Their tongue struts. They are prideful, they are arrogant and wicked. And the people who aren't wicked, who are seeking to do the right thing, who are trying to follow the will of God, who are being led on paths of righteousness, like Psalm 1 says, the people, these people look at the wicked people in all their prosperity and have a tendency to be envious. And when we do this, we sound a lot like verses 10 and 11. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And in our envy, we start to question God. And we start to wonder if God really even exists in the first place. And and we ask questions. We ask all kinds of questions. And we start to wonder, why am I doing this Christianity thing in the first place? 
This is the idea behind verses 13 through 15. We, we start to think of our Christianity as vanity. It seems meaningless. And, and all of these religious things we do. Asaph is very honest about his doubts. And he's also honest about the motive behind his doubts. For Asaph, for Asaph it's, it's not necessarily an intellectual doubt. There's also emotion involved. It's true for us as well. Our doubts are not entirely intellectual. We're not, we're not these walking computers or, or, or brains floating around on sticks. We're, our doubts are a mixed bag of emotions and thoughts. It, it's the human experience that really brings these doubts up. And all of these doubts start to fill our minds and, and we're forced to wrestle with them. So we read verses 16 and 17 with me. It says this, starting in verse 16, but, but when I thought how to understand this. It seemed, like a, seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Boy, isn't that right? Tr- trying to work out these doubts really is hard work. Uh, one thing I, I tell my Sunday morning class a lot, yeah, my Sunday morning Bible class, is that the questions they ask me are usually more important than the answers I give them. The questions are more important than the answers. Those, those unanswered questions you have They shape you and they mold you into who you are. They shape and mold what you believe. Those doubts, they they form you spiritually. So when does Asaph start to discern some of these these doubts he's having? Verse 17 says, Not until he went into the sanctuary of God. That is the temple in this case. This is not our tendency. What what do we do when we doubt? Our tendency is is to, when, when, when we doubt, we push away from the church. It's usually because we're exposed to someone else's belief. But Asaph intentionally goes to the temple. We do the opposite. I, I think it's because of the way we think about doubt. We tend to think that doubt leads us away from God. But I don't think that's necessarily true. It's not that doubt leads you away from God. I think doubt is a pursuit of what is true. That's like the definition of doubt. You don't think something is true, so you go and find out what is true. That's like the entire doubting experience. Doubting is the pursuit of truth. But that doesn't mean it leads you away from God, because God is truth. God is truth. Doubt is a pursuit of that truth. And in our moments of doubt, cutting ourselves off from the church is the last thing we should be doing. I mean, think about it. Our problem with doubt isn't unbelief. It's other beliefs. Doubt isn't throwing away belief. Everybody believes something. Doubt really happens when we encounter other beliefs. Doubt happens when you have to weigh two conflicting truth claims. It's like a seesaw. You remember playing on a seesaw as a kid? Um, Oh man, I had some terrible experiences on seesaws. Uh, You you get a kid on each side of the seesaw, you know, and, and you're going up and down as the weight shifts. And what happens when you're in the air and the other kid jumps off? Wham! You know, that, that happened to me too many times. It, it was traumatized. Uh, you're you're, you're going to be uh, walking funny the rest of the day because your own weight brought you straight down to the ground. That's, that's the same thing that happens when we cut ourselves off from the church in our moments of doubt. We're weighing two truth, claim, two truth claims. And then we just let the church side of it, the, the, the Christian side of it, the spiritual side of it, we just shove it off the seesaw. And what happens? We fall. Bam. All you have left is the weight of this other truth claim, and you haven't considered the other side. No wonder so many people find themselves falling away from the church when they doubt, and they cut themselves off from the church. This week, um, over the last couple of weeks, I've been reflecting um, on uh, an elder of the church where I grew up. Uh, But but 
especially with the psalm, one name comes to mind for me. It's the wife of the, the elder. He just passed away. And she passed away a while back. Marie Branscombe was her name, elder's wife. And she was one of my Bible class teachers for years growing up. But she wasn't just a Bible class teacher, though. She, she was the best Bible class teacher I've ever had. And that's including my college professors. She was better than them. Uh, she was a good Bible class teacher. Um, th- th- there were only two of us in her class. It was me and her grandson. And we spent hours on end in Scripture. And, and it wasn't just Sunday morning Bible class. Uh, we spent hours with Marie. We were with Marie all the time. We would go over to her house after school uh, for Bible class. I-, I had to have my mom sign a permission slip so I could take the bus home to-, to Marie's house. And she would pound Scripture into your head. And by the time you walked out of Marie's class or Marie's house, by the time you walked out of there, you'd know more Scripture than most of the adults in the church knew as a little boy. Because Marie was dedicated to teaching Scripture. She was an amazing Bible class teacher. And if it weren't for Marie Branscombe, I don't think I would be where I am today. I certainly wouldn't be a preacher. And and, and you know what made Marie a great teacher? It wasn't that she was some sort of genius. It wasn't that she was highly intellectual. She was a normal person just like me and you. But there were two things that made her great. First, she valued us, and she let us know we were valued. But two, she taught us the basics of Scripture. She taught us the basics of the Bible. She didn't go deep. She stayed surface level for us. She taught us the basic facts. She had us memorizing the books of the Bible. She had us memorizing the apostles and, and important scriptures. And when she taught us Bible stories, it wasn't the deep stuff. It was the surface level stuff. She focused on what happened in the story. She wanted us to be able to tell the story to our parents when we went home. I didn't realize how important that would be to me. Because in my teenage years, I had many questions. I faced doubt after doubt after doubt. I had to reconcile what I learned in school with what I learned in church, and many times they were two completely different things. In fact, two opposing things. I learned in church um, lots of Bible things that kept me grounded, and, and, and I, had, I had questions all the time. Questions like, why do I exist in the first place? What makes me, me? If, if God is good, you've heard this one, if God is good and God is all-powerful, why does evil exist? Those are the questions I was facing. We need Marie Branscombs in the church. We need people who are dedicated to teaching the basics of Scripture to our kids. And church, um, man, we can do that. We can do that. Because our kids are going through the time in their lives when, when they're going to have to ask these questions. It's coming up for them. And we need Christians who are dedicated to helping our kids find truth so they can work through these doubts, so they can be like Asaph, starting out in that first verse with that foundation, God is good. I know that, but here's what I'm experiencing. Asaph goes back to the temple, and that's where he resolves his doubt. He says, then I discern their end. And as he wrestles with these questions he has, he comes to the conclusion, the wicked don't really have it all that great after all. In in verse 18, he comes back to the word he started with. He started in verse 1 with the word truly. And in verse 18, he comes back to it. He says, truly again. And look at the ones who are slipping and falling now. It's the wicked. And Asaph emphasizes this this temporary existence they have. All of these pleasures they are enjoying now are all momentary. Notice how his doubt has turned now. It's changed. 
In verse 1, he was doubting God, but now in these verses, he's doubting the benefit of a temporary existence. He's asking an important question here. He's saying, what is the point of life of wickedness? It's really meaningless. The best thing you've got to look forward to in a life of meaningless is death. It's hopeless existence. His doubt has reshaped itself. He's no longer asking, how great is God really? But now he's asking, how great is life without God really? After all this doubt, after all this questioning, where does Asaph end up? It's a lot like where he started, but, but, it's, but it's more than that. You can see his progression. Now he's not just saying, God is good. No, in, in verse 22, he, he even says he was ignorant before. Now, now he's taking that truth that God is good, he's taking it so much further. Now it's not just that God is good. Now he knows him on an intimate level. Now it's not just that God is good. Now it's God that, that, that Asaph desires nothing else besides God. Now it's not just God is good. Now it's God is the strength of my heart. Now, now it's not just God is good. Now it's God is my portion forever. The truth he started with now overflows in his life. But what did Asaph have to go through to get to that point? He had a doubt. He had to wrestle with his doubts. He had to work through those tough questions. He had to dive into those issues he was probably afraid of addressing. His doubt fueled his faith. His doubt led him to truth. His doubt became the pathway to a deeply rooted faith in God. Brothers and sisters and friends, I know you have doubts. And I know you have doubts because I know... I have those doubts, and I have fears about those doubts and those questions. But I want you to be assured from Scripture, it's time to start asking the hard questions. It's time to start working through those things. It's time to start digging into Scripture and, 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 and diving deep into it to, to find those answers to those questions. In fact, um, is that not one of the main purposes why we gather together? We are seeking truth together as the church. We are doubting together. We are asking the tough questions together. And, and it's all because we want to know God. We want to have the same intimacy with God that Asaph experienced and doubted. We, we want to be able to recognize God as the strength of our heart and our portion forever. So maybe, maybe your response tonight, maybe it just needs to be you walking away from this service scratching your head. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're scratching your head and you're asking the tough questions that you've been avoiding. Maybe it means you're, you're going to have to stop ignoring that doubt. Maybe you're having doubts and you need some guidance. And that's, that's why we're here together. That's why you've got people like, like your elders. That's, why you've got, that, that's what the elders do. They shepherd the flock through these spiritual circumstances. That's why you've got people like Matt and Anthony to, to help you through these doubts. Maybe, it's, maybe you're in need of some guidance with these. That's why we're together. Maybe you're the person who's been through those doubts and you've asked those questions. Maybe it's time for you to help a whole generation of Christians with their doubt like Marie Branscombe did for me. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian and you've had questions about Christianity. You've had questions about God. You've had questions about Jesus. You've had questions about your own life or maybe your own death. I think now is a good, as good a time as any to start a conversation where you start wrestling with those questions together. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you have wrestled with those questions and you've made the decision to become a Christian through baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And if that is the case, we invite you to come forward in a moment. If there's any way we can help you, please come while we stand and while we sing.